You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. So inshallah, continuing with our uh, series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratun Nabawiyyah, there was, um, there's a very well-known, again, a very well-known uh, famous story from the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that is mentioned very, you know, commonly. Um, but I wanted to address it here in this particular session and also kind of place it into a context. So there are certain stories that are very well-known from the, from the seerah, from the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And they get quoted, obviously, for the benefits and the lessons therein, um, sometimes in an isolated fashion. Uh, when we come to those particular points in the chronology of the life, the biography of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and we get to those particular incidents, part of the benefit of that is not only studying it from the actual text, rather, than just kind of quoting back to the story summarily. We actually get to read it from the text. But the second benefit is that it places it back into its context. And it, it, it sheds a new light on it within the context itself. So this particular phase of the seerah that we were talking about after the boycott ended, about 10 years after the mission began, the Prophet ﷺ is about 50, close to about 51 years old. It's also mentioned about the Prophet ﷺ that, وَكَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ كَثِيرًا مَا يَجْلِسُ عِنْدَ الْمَرْوَى إِلَى مَبِيعَةِ غُلَامٍ نَصْرَانِيٍ يُقَالُ لَهُ جَبْرٌ عَبْدٌ لِبَنِ الْحَضْرَمِ So, it's mentioned we talked about this in the previous couple of sessions, how the Prophet ﷺ embraced the disenfranchised of society and community. And how the Prophet ﷺ did not shy away from that fact. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasized to the Prophet ﷺ, So the Prophet ﷺ was instructed by Allah, was forbidden by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to ever cast out and leave out these people. And Allah of course described them as people who prayed to Allah, who remember Allah morning and evening. But what it meant in that social context at that time was the poor, slaves, downtrodden, um, you know, uh, outcasts of that time. The Prophet ﷺ used to embrace them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasized to him that he needed to embrace them. And so while there were very noble reputable, even wealthy individuals who are part of the community of the Prophet ﷺ, such as Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Uthman ibn Affan, Abdurrahman bin Auf radiallahu anhum, at the same time, it is clearly part of the fact that the majority of the community of Muslims at that time was made up of poor people, slaves, and others who were disenfranchised within society. So following with that sunnah, that tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, there was an individual that the Prophet ﷺ used to visit from time to time. He was a slave of some of the, you know, one of the families, uh, one of the Arab, the Qurayshi families. He was a slave of theirs and he was Nasrani. It specifically mentions about this particular slave that he was Christian. And so... The Prophet ﷺ used to regularly go and visit one slave who was owned by, who, who was the possession of uh, a family there in Mecca, and this particular slave was a Christian. 
But because he was a slave, he was, you know, oppressed, he was beaten, he was treated very badly by his owners. So the Prophet ﷺ used to go and visit him. And this was a habit of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a great sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that the Prophet ﷺ would go and visit him. To basically check on him, console him, make sure he was doing okay, make sure he, that he was alright. And just to embrace him. And that's the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, to visit such people. And it does, every visit doesn't always have to be a very overbearing, preachy visit, where basically we go and hand them a pamphlet and tell them Islam, and then leave right away. But the Prophet ﷺ would go, hug them, embrace them, sit with them, bring some food for them, break some bread with them. And over time they would see the kindness of this individual and this man and they would uh, come to the realization that what this man has to offer is, is something that obviously is khayr because I only know khayr from this man. I, this man has been nothing but good to me. So what he has to offer to me must obviously be good as well. So, and they used to call him the nickname, the nickname given to this man, this slave, was Jabr. They used to call him Jabr. So the Prophet ﷺ used to go and sit with him regularly. What ended up happening after a while was, the Prophet ﷺ was just visiting him on the rounds in Mecca. Some of the leadership of the Quraysh, individuals like Abu Jahl, what they started doing was, they say, you see, you see, Muhammad goes and sits with that Christian. And that Christian, he's always, he's got, he's got those weird beliefs. They believe in like one God and they have these, you know, this, this book that they read and there's prophets and anbiya and rusul and angels and malaika and afterlife and jannah and jahannam and hereafter. He's also got those weird strange beliefs. And Muhammad talks about that kind of stuff a lot. So what Abu Jahl and the people in his crew, what they, the propaganda they started was, so see what happens is, Muhammad and that, that slave, that Christian slave, Nasrani, they sit together and they basically come up with all of this nonsense. They plot and they plan and they, 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 they kind of scheme together and they come up with all these crazy ideas and then they basically go around propagating all their nonsense. So they try to attribute that to the Prophet ﷺ. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in the Qur'an that they say, يَقُولُونَ إِنَّمَا يُعَلِّمُهُ بَشَرٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that they say that it is a man, it is a human being who teaches them. Who teaches him, Muhammad sallallahu Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refuted this by saying, لِسَانُ الَّذِي يُلْحِدُونَ إِلَيْهِ أَعْجَمِي Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that the, the, the tongue, the language of that man that they try to attribute to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is أَعْجَمِي it's, it's not even an Arab tongue. That man doesn't speak Arabic. That man doesn't speak Arabic. It's not, Arabic is not his tongue. And that's what they try to attribute Muhammad and what Muhammad ﷺ teaches to them, preaches to them. They try to attribute it to that man when he doesn't even speak Arabic. And Allah said, and rather this Qur'an, this divine scripture and revelation and the teachings of Muhammad this is the Arabic tongue that is very, very clear. That this is very eloquent, very clear, very powerful, very concise Arabic tongue. 
Arabic language. And the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the word lisan is that when you read the Qur'an, or even when you read the words of the Prophet ﷺ, you can obviously tell that this isn't something that was translated into Arabic. You know, there's, there's a difference between something being in the Arabic language and something being from the tongue, of, like from the Arab tongue. And in Arabic, the distinction, in classical Arabic, the difference in the distinction between lugha and lisan is lugha is just a language. So if you sat there, took some English script, got an Arabic-English dictionary, and for word for word you translated a paragraph from English into Arabic, now that is in the Arabic language, but it might not necessarily be in accordance with the Arab speech. The Arab tongue, it doesn't have that flow, that conciseness, the figures of speech, the expressions, the eloquence, it lacks all of that. But saying that something is in the Arabic tongue is saying that it's not just simply in the Arabic language, but it is a masterpiece. It is coming from the Arabic language in its origins. It is a masterpiece of that particular language. So it's a presentation of a masterpiece in the Arabic language. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that listen, read, understand the Quran and you'll see that it's in the Arabic tongue. When this man barely speaks Arabic. So their claim in and of itself was a very, very shallow, superficial slander and propaganda that could easily be seen through. You could easily call it out for what it was. It was false, it was bogus, it was nonsense. So this was, this, these were one the, this was one of the accusations that they made against the Prophet ﷺ. And what's very interesting is that this is something that was later on latched onto by folks who tried to criticize Islam, particularly many of the Orientalists in their study of the Qur'an and Sirah. They, many of them actually referred back to this, that there were Christians at that time. There was this Christian slave that Muhammad used to go and sit with. There's a couple of problems with that particular idea or that theory. Even if we were to entertain it, there's a couple of problems. First problem is the language of the Qur'an itself speaks to a very great mastery of that particular language when this slave, his native tongue wasn't even the Arabic language. Secondly, the problem is, is that this slave, even, you know, it, it is impossible for the Prophet ﷺ to be getting the teachings that he was, the teachings of Islam from this man. Because the fact of the matter about this slave was that he was a slave. His own personal faith was Christianity, but by no means was he a scholar of Christianity. He wasn't a scholar of Christianity, where the Prophet ﷺ would be able to go to him to get theology, and legal structure, and you know, deep philosophical, spiritual foundations. That'd be impossible to get from this man. His own personal faith was that he was Christian. That's about it. That's the extent of it. So there's many, many different fallacies with this particular, you know, line of thinking. What I wanted to then mention then, that another thing that exposes how these people, the people who are basically spreading these type of rumors, you, you can also take a look at them personally and their own reaction to the Qur'an to see how this was nothing but a bunch of propaganda and this was slander and nothing more. Very unintelligent slander. So what we can take a look at, what we can learn is, right around this time, in the chronology of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, we find a very famous well-known incident. The famous well-known incident is that it talks about how the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, of course based off of the command of Allah ﷻ, the Prophet ﷺ had a practice. His practice was that the Prophet ﷺ used to go and he would basically go and home at night 
And he would wake up in the middle of the night and he would recite the Qur'an. He would recite the book of Allah in, you know, in, in the qiyam prayers, in the tahajjud prayers. And the Prophet ﷺ would recite the Qur'an. And he would actually recite the Qur'an out loud oftentimes. And so there's a recorded incident that Imam Bukhari and many other scholars of hadith have recorded that there were three individuals amongst many, but these were three that basically ran into one another and there's a recorded account of them. And who is telling this, is, this account? Abu Sufyan himself, he was one of the three. So Abu Sufyan tells us that before I accepted Islam, back in the days of Mecca, around this time, he said, Abu Jahl, myself, and Akhnas bin Shuraiq. All three of these were leaders of the Quraysh, and they were at the head of the opposition against the Prophet ﷺ and his message. He said, what we used to do was we would go at night, we would basically you know, sneak up, to a window or the door or outside of the house of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and we would listen through the you know through the window or we'd listen through the crack in the door to the recitation of the Quran, and it was just something so captivating. What he was reciting was so powerful in its meaning, so captivating in its language, and so beautifully being recited by him that. I would spend hours sometimes a night. I would be outside his door, I'd be outside his window for an hour, two hours, before I would realize that it was always mor almost morning time, and then I would run back home, so that nobody would see me. And this had been going on for quite some time. The whole time while we were opposing him, slandering him, cursing him, you know, torturing his followers, we were doing all of this during the daytime, at nighttime, I was sneaking up and listening to the recitation of the Qur'an. And so he goes, this was kind of that paradox that many of us were trapped in. So he goes, one night I was leaving from the house of the Prophet ﷺ, and in the way I ran into Abu Jahl, none other than Abu Jahl and Akhnas bin Shuraiq, another leader of Quraysh who was very uh, a strong you know, opponent of the message of the Prophet ﷺ. And he goes, we kind of ran into each other, and it's, it's not any type of a time where there's an obvious reason why somebody would be out, and all three of us are meeting basically uh, on, the, on the street in front of the house of Muhammad Wasallam. It's like 2, 3, 4 a.m. And so we just kind of meet up, and you know, they say that awkward moment. So he goes, we're all just kind of standing there looking at each other, trying to explain like, oh, it's you. And then we're trying to figure out how do we explain to one another like why we're here. And so somebody finally said, he goes, what are you doing here? He goes, me, what are you doing here? And he goes, me, he goes, what is he doing here? And he said, we all stood there, kind of like, it's, somebody's got to answer something. And everybody had that look on their face. So one of us finally fessed up and said, you know, um, I came here to listen to Muhammad recite. Yeah, I'm just checking on what's he talking about these days. He goes, what were you doing here? He goes, the same. What about you? The same. And they kind of, you know, justified it to one another. You know, we got to keep a track on him and what's going on and try to figure out what he's going to be talking about tomorrow to people and things like that. So they kind of made themselves, you know, save a little face with one another. But then he says, we said to one another, we can't be doing this, regardless of whatever reason we're here for. We can't do this. Because if somebody else f sees us here, people see us, find out that we're here and I listening to him, other people will feel that it's okay to listen to him. And it's just a matter of that. As soon as people hear this, 
They're going to be convinced. So that's it. All three of us got to make a promise. We got to make a pact. Nobody's coming back here. And he said, that's it. Nobody's coming back here. Scout's honor. And so he says the next day, I come back because I, I just couldn't stay away. I'm laying in bed, tossing and turning because I want to hear. I, I need to know. I need to listen. Not realizing that it was actually the, the seed of iman that was taking root in my heart. It's Abu Sufyan, radiyallahu anhu, would accept Islam later on. So he goes, I went out, li- went to listen for a little while and said, okay, I should get going now. And I'm leaving and all of a sudden, we all three see one another again. He goes, again? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And then again, Abu Jahl said, we got to put an end to this. It's not good, guys. It's not healthy. It's going to backfire on all of us. All right, all right. Nobody's coming back tomorrow. Then he goes, the third day, again, I'm laying in bed, restless. I don't know what to do with myself. So then again, I sneaked out. I said, there's no way those guys are coming back today. They busted twice. And I sneak out, and I get there, listen for a little while, leaving, and we spot each other again. I said, again? I said, again. So I said, that's it. No more, guys. Nobody can come here again. It's gone on too long and way, it's gone way too far. No more of this. So then again, they made a pact. And he says actually after that, that after that point, we didn't visit back too often. Too often. That's not precluding the fact that occasionally maybe came in for a little while to listen or not. But again, we didn't run into each other at the very least. But he says, Abu Sufyan says that I could not leave it be. It was still kind of, you know, just, just bothering me. It was still, you know, causing me some restlessness. And he says, apparently, Akhnaz bin Shuraik felt the same way. So Akhnaz bin Shuraik goes to Abu Sufyan. And he says, what do you think about what we hear? What we heard? What Muhammad recites? This Qur'an, what do you think about it? So Abu Sufyan actually responds to Akhnas bin Shuraik, saying that, I can tell you this, some of what I hear, I understand and I know. I get it. But there's some stuff that I hear him reciting, it's so beyond me, it's so far beyond the human realm, like I don't even think I fully understand or grasp it, and I definitely don't know where it comes from. But I can tell you this, that's not from Muhammad. Like it's not him, himself. He's not making this stuff up. It's just, it just, I don't know. It baffles me. There's a lot of what I hear him reciting. I have no explanation for it. So Akhnas bin Shuraik hears these honest thoughts from Abu Sufyan. And he's, he's seriously like questioning, considering certain things. So then he goes on to Abu Jahl. And he asks him, Amr ibn Hisham, Abu Jahl, he says, Ya Abul Hakam, what do you think about what we hear Muhammad reciting? This is what Abu Sufyan had to say. Abu Jahl tells Akhnas bin Shuraik, I can't tell you this much. I can't tell you this much. Banu Amir, us, we've competed with Banu Abd Munaf for a very, very long time. 
all families within Quraysh, the tribe, but families, the two major families, we have a rivalry. We've competed for a very long time. We always try to outdo one another. We're always competing with each other for prestige, fame, popularity, money, influence, political power. We've always been in competition. Friendly competition, but competition nonetheless. You know, they, they go and, you know, set up some type of a, a, a festival. We set up a bit bigger festival. They go and, you know, um, spend some money. We spend more money. They do this, we do that, bigger. And he goes, then all of a sudden, along the way, in that competition, they've come now telling us that one of them is a prophet and a messenger. And he's got this unbelievable... Quran, this divine revelation that he reads to us, recites to us, that he receives. If, if we were to accept it, and what he's basically saying here is that on the basis of what I hear, purely based on what we've heard him recite, this divine revelation, he has grounds and we actually are justified in accepting his message. Because this is, this is something that's obviously divine. But the problem is, is that if we acknowledge as a family, if we acknowledge that one of them is a prophet and a messenger and has divine revelation, we have to be able to provide the same thing. To maintain our social status and maintain the order in Mecca and Quraysh. Which we won't be able to do. So the best route is that we don't accept, we don't believe, we got to keep the balance, we got to keep you know, things in order in Mecca, in Quraysh. And therefore, this is out of the question, this discussion is officially off the table, and we're not talking about this no more. Nobody's going there, nobody's listening to him, nobody's believing in him. So you need to go home and just, just, get, just get this out of your system. So we see from this particular narration, which is again based here at this particular time within the seerah, that while on one hand, these same people, a man like Abu Jahal, Akhnas bin Shuraiq, Abu Sufyan, these same people are trying to find ways to criticize the Prophet ﷺ, to try to scare people away from the Prophet ﷺ, discredit Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ. So they're saying that this is a Christian man, this Christian slave, Muhammad goes with him and they make up all this nonsense and then they go around preaching it all week long. Don't listen to this nonsense. But they themselves contradict themselves by, what, by doing what? They contradict their own propaganda against the Prophet ﷺ by at nights going and listening to the Prophet ﷺ recite the Qur'an and then the following day actually having discussions where they say, you can't deny what he says. We have no response and no answer for what he reads and recites and tells us. Other than we got to maintain our political status. We got to be able to maintain our influence and our power in Mecca. That's basically what it boils down to. So we see, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, the different ways that they were trying to continue their, their propaganda against the Prophet ﷺ. They were continuing their, 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 the, the pushing of their agenda, which was to refute Islam, to refute the Prophet ﷺ, to refute the Qur'an. And they tried through different means. They tried through all these different means. They tried by, you know, um, trying to make it undesirable to go and sit with the Prophet ﷺ. Because of the lower social status of many of the people who did sit with the Prophet ﷺ. But when that still did not work, that was not working. They then switched over 
to this particular strategy that why don't we just discredit him altogether? Just say that this is all nonsense and bogus and he's just making this stuff up. Which again did not stand because people heard the Qur'an and they realized it's not as simple as what these people are saying. And they themselves didn't even believe themselves for what they were saying. As evidenced by this particular story and this incident about how they used to go and listen to the Prophet ﷺ. So this brings us to that particular place now where in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, in the seat of the Prophet ﷺ, the first 11 years of the message of the Prophethood, the Prophet ﷺ is close to the age of 51 years old. Things are pretty much, they, they, they've, they've built up to a certain point. And things have become you know, pretty um, standard. It's like, it's like standard operating procedure at this point. The Prophet ﷺ is still teaching and preaching the message. Slowly but surely people still accepting Islam, coming over. But then at the same time the opposition, many of the key forces and the key individuals in the opposition have completely, you know, galvanized and they've become really set in their ways in terms of opposing the message to the point where they're not even thinking about the validity of the message anymore. They just know my job is to oppose whatever Muhammad says. Whatever Muhammad says, my job is to say the opposite of that. They've kind of become set into that role as well. And they continue their, you know, their, their preaching against the Prophet And the folks that are continuing to accept Islam, continue to come into the fold of the Muslim community, many of them have to basically keep their iman and their Islam very secret and very quiet because the torture is basically out in the open. It's again part of standard life in Mecca that these people torture these people. These people persecute these people. These people, they oppress these people. And that again has become a part of standard everyday life in Mecca. And that's pretty much how things are going. Things are running. At this particular point, to again, take the next step to transition from the second phase of the Makkan message, the Makkan Sirah. We talked about this earlier, that the life of the Prophet ﷺ is pre-Nubuwa and then the era of Nubuwa, 23 years, 40 years, 23 years. That 23 years of Nubuwa is split up into two categories, Makkan and Medinan. The Makkan phase and the Mac, or the the Makkan period and the Medinan period, thirteen years and then ten years, but the Makkan period itself is split up into three phases, three stages. Number one was the first three years, the private preaching and teaching in Makkah. We talked about that. The second stage was the open preaching and teaching of the message in Makkah, which we are nearing the end of now. And then there were some very critical, crucial events that occurred in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, which transitioned him from the second to the third stage of the Meccan period. And that's basically what we'll be talking about insha'Allah from next week on. They were great profound experiences, even tragedies in the personal life of the Prophet ﷺ, which what, which served as a transition from the second to the third stage of the Makkah period. Inshallah, we'll uh, delve into that starting next week. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.